to the Mad Wild West podcast. Kick your boots off and stay a while because you're about to hear the stories lost in time from the people that lived and made the Wild West mad. To all my longtime Mad Wild West listeners, you know by now that there's no such thing as political correctness in the Mad Wild West. And that even goes for advertisements. So let's look at who are the sponsors of this podcast from the 1800s. We take this out of the Phoenix Herald, October 20th, 1882. It reads, Again, the dogs of war are loose. And while the Arabs are murdering human beings in cold blood, we will devote our talents to the more humane business of slaughtering prices. We do this knowingly and willfully because the people demand it and the way we buy our goods justify it. You cannot be disappointed in our stock of fall and winter goods consisting of dry goods, ladies, fancy goods, boots, and shoes, gents' clothing, family groceries, hardware, etc. Our location is immense, every department full to overflowing, and so nicely selected that the most fastidious will be unable to find fault with the quality of the goods that we are offering. It will be to your detriment if you fail to see us, for we certainly have a royal line of goods at bedrock prices. Come on down to Rosenthal and Kuttner, Phoenix, Arizona. How's that for politically incorrect? Welcome to the 1800s in the Mad Wild West. And here's another important ad from 1882, the Phoenix Herald. In big, bold letters at the top of the ad, it reads, A wife. Rare chance to get a good one. Oceanic Matrimonial Bureau. It is a familiar fact that in the West, marriageable men predominate greatly over marriageable women. And also that in the older Eastern states, there are more marriageable women than men by at least 50%. The chief aim of the life of every woman is to be well married. Hence, to the unmarried men, simply send us your name and address with an enclosure of $1 to cover expenditures and we will return you the addresses of five different respectable, marriageable young ladies applying to us from all of the older states. Each will respond to gentlemanly advances. Address promptly to J.R. Laurel Publisher, Main Street, Dallas, Texas. I don't know, folks. Do you think that's real? Or do you think there's some guy writing letters back to men for a dollar? I'll leave that to you to decide. On to the headlines of the day. Still pulling from the Phoenix Herald, October 20th, 1882. Headline reads, Sheriff killed Omaha, Nebraska, October 17th. Last night at Kearney County, Sheriff Jack Wood was shot and instantly killed by a house thief whom he was attempting to arrest in the dining hall of a hotel. The thief and his three companions then killed two other citizens and escaped, their whereabouts currently unknown. San Francisco, October 16th. A tailor named Peter P. Candelier, a native of Sweden, age 48, committed suicide in a room in the First Avenue house by hanging. Financial trouble was the cause. The deceased was unmarried. This headline reads, Telegraphic, San Carlos Agency, October 15th. 
General Crook held a very important conference with 400 of the chiefs and head of the Apaches at this post today. He made known in a few unmistakable terms the policy to govern during the time he should remain in command of all the departments. All Indians are to be counted daily and none allowed away from the reservation without papers. The manufacture of Tiswin, the favorite liquor of the Apaches, is to be stopped. Indians found off the reservations without passes are to be treated as hostiles. In conclusion, General Crook said that while every encouragement and assistance would be given Indians willing to be peaceful and work for their own living, no mercy would be shown to those disposed to go on the warpath. If any of the Indians at the council felt disposed to break out, he thought it best to break out now and bring the question of supremacy to a test without more delay. Lieutenant Dodd, 3rd Cavalry, with a detachment of Indian scouts, went out after a small body of Apaches reported off the reservation. He brought back the whole party, 11 in all, this morning. Killed by streetcars. San Francisco, October 12th. This evening, Ray Palmer, a five-year-old son of C.M. Palmer of this city, was run over by the Geary Street cars and instantly killed. A Portland, Oregon dispatch says the strike on the Northern Pacific has assumed a serious shape. Yesterday, after the rate aboard had been fixed, the men demanded $2.50 a day instead of $2 a day. This was refused by the superintendent. All Chinese men were then driven from the works. Superintendent Hallett is said to have telegraphed for Missouri troops. This morning, the lenders of the mob threatened to hang Hallett. Engineer Halen and the paymaster started to the front this morning with a large sum of money and an escort of 25 soldiers. While the men on construction, as a rule, were well dispatched, there are probably 200 ex-convicts and many fugitives from justice on the ground. To say nothing of the band of desperate camp followers, there's good reason for fearing acts of violence. And here's a little bit different headline than my usual Mad Wild West headline, but I want to bring it to you just because I found it interesting. So here you go. This is 1882, out of the Phoenix Herald. The present comet in the eastern sky, which can be distinctly seen by everyone in the early morning, is certainly one of the most remarkable of all the modern comets. Professor Lewis Swift, director of the Warner Observatory, Rochester, New York, states that the comet grazed the sun so closely as to cause a great disturbance, so much so that it has divided into no less than eight separate parts all of which can be distinctly seen by a good telescope. There is only one other instance on record where a comet has divided, that one being Biela's Comet of 1846, which separated into two parts. Applications have been made on Mr. H. H. Warner by partners who have noticed these cometary offshoots, claiming the $200 prize for each one of them. Whether the Great Comet will continue to produce a brood of smaller comets remains to be seen. That headline's an example showing us that even the skies were mad back in the Wild West days. Alrighty, water your horses and load up your six-shooters, because you've just reached the main story of the podcast.
About the time of the expulsion of the Indians from North Missouri, the central and western portions of the state were agitated by a religious fanaticism, which in some respects surpassed that of the fanatical pilgrims. This new religious sect called themselves the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but the common name for them was the Mormons. Their leader was Joseph Smith, who declared that he had received revelations from heaven with the command to found a new church. He also claimed to have discovered some mysterious plates which, by divine direction, he dug from the earth in the western part of New York State. These plates he interpreted and published as the Book of Mormon, sometimes called the Mormon Bible. He at once began preaching his new religion, and about the year 1831, with a number of converts, he removed to Kirtland, Ohio. Historians and biographers have dealt very harshly with Joseph Smith. He is represented by some as an unprincipled, lazy fellow who should have been sent to the penitentiary early in his career. He seems to have been subject to periodical backslidings, occasionally professing religion, then falling from grace and becoming again a drunken loafer. At last, however, according to his own statement, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a vision, pardoned his sins, and told him where to find the mysterious plates upon which he was to found the church, Latter-day Saints. In many respects, the Mormons were like the fanatical pilgrims. The head of their government, spiritual and temporal, was a prophet, and like the prophet of the pilgrims, he had visions. Like the pilgrims, also the Mormons journeyed southwest in search of Zion, or the New Jerusalem. It was to find this holy spot that Smith visited Missouri in 1831, and there the search ended. For independence, Jackson County seemed to fulfill the conditions. Smith named this place the New Jerusalem, and then returned to Kirtland. Next year, the prophet visited Missouri with many followers, who all located in Jackson County. They had considerable money, for they entered several hundred acres of land, most of which was west of Independence. They professed to own all things in common, which really meant, however, that the bishops and prophet owned everything. They established a newspaper, the first in the county, and they called it the Evening Star. In this journal, the revelations of the prophet appeared in weekly installments. These revelations promised great things to true believers, but foretold terrible consequences to the Gentiles, as they called all not Mormons. The Gentiles at first merely ridiculed the prophecies thus published, but it was not long before these prophecies became bold threats. Joseph Smith and his Mormon bishops promised the faithful that they would drive out the Gentiles and take the country. They even declared their intention to unite the Indians of the North with themselves and drive away all opponents of Mormonism. They said that it was the Lord's country and that the Lord's people were entitled to it. Incensed by such expressions from the press and pulpit, the Gentiles in and near Independence rose in a body, destroyed the printing office, and tarred and feathered the bishop with one or two of his companions. This was in July of 1833. The Mormons were not slow to retaliate, and other deeds of violence led to a fray which three men were killed. Then on November 2nd, the Mormons marched to destroy the town of Independence, but turned back on the appearance of a large body of Gentiles. Negotiations for peace were entered into, and it was finally decided that the Mormons were to leave that part of the country and never return. The Gentiles were to pay them for the star printing office, and they were given until the end of the year to leave Jackson County. 
The exodus commenced at once. The Mormons crossed the Missouri River and settled in Clay and Carroll counties, but afterwards moved into Caldwell County, where they built up a town called Far West. Its site is now in the middle of a cultivated field not far from Kingston. Among its buildings was the home for Joseph Smith, a small, substantial frame structure of one and a half stories. And in the center of town was left a space for a large and splendid temple. The Mormons, however, did not begin work on this temple until the year 1837, and so it was never built. All this time, the prophet and others were engaged in making converts to the new faith. Mormon missionaries spread over most of the United States and several European countries, and they sent many new believers to settle near Far West. These recruits laid out farms, built houses, and quickly changed the wilderness into a prosperous community. The Mormon settlements extended into Livingston, Carroll, Davies, and Clinton counties. Far West was, for a time, their only town, but it was laid out on a grid scale, and it became an important commercial center. Whatever else may be said of Mormon people while in Missouri, they cannot be accused of lacking energy and industry. It is true that as a rule, they are not well educated, but they are nearly always thrifty and prosperous. If their religion had been less obnoxious and they had been more charitable to their neighbors, and if they had not adopted unlawful practices, they might have long remained a power in the state. But in addition to advocating polygamy, they still claimed that they were God's chosen children and thus were entitled to everything. The prosperity of the Mormon settlements drew to that part of the state many good and industrious people who did not partake of their particular notions. The Mormons became very jealous of these unbelievers and they called them and determined to drive them away. Bands of lawless Mormons began to wander over the country plundering the Gentiles indiscriminately. Many members of the new sect were undoubtedly sincere and desired to do right, but beside them, under a cloak of religion and fanaticism, many bad men sought to enrich themselves. The Gentiles, with great alarm, noticed the growing strength and proportionate lawlessness of this religious body, but they were powerless to prevent them. Nearly all the offices were under Mormon control, and if a band of these robbers were arrested, they were tried before Mormon officials and juries and were acquitted. The Gentiles had the sympathy of the people outside the Mormon districts, and had not those misguided fanatics believed so implicitly in Joseph Smith's prophecies, they may have seen that they were laying the foundation of their own ruin. The schemes of the prophet were so wild and unreasonable as to cause one to doubt his sanity. But the followers of Black Hawk, Big Neck, and other Indian chiefs were still smarting under their defeat, and his plan to unite all the Indians with his Mormon followers and sweep the Gentiles from the earth seemed not impossible to the Missourians. A small colony of Mormons had located at DeWitt in Carroll County, and the people determined to drive them out. About this time, trouble also rose between the Mormons and Gentiles in Davies County. The people were anxious to elect officials who would punish Mormon offenders, and the only way to do it was to disenfranchise all of the sect. This was attempted at an election held near Gallatin, and a fight was the result. The citizens of Davies County called on the people of Carroll to aid them in driving out the obnoxious foe. The men of Carroll County responded heartily. 
But while they were assisting in the suppression of the disorders of the neighbors, the Mormons took advantage of their absence from home to send many recruits to DeWitt. Here, the Mormons showed signs of making a stand. The Gentiles, to the number of four or five hundred, surrounded their camp and organized a little army. Jackson of Howard County was elected Brigadier General, Price of Clay was made Colonel, and Vaughn Lieutenant Colonel, and Woods a Major. Under these officers, the brigade spent 10 days in drilling and then began an attack on the Mormons, but they desisted after a few shots were exchanged. Matters were finally adjusted peacefully when the Mormons agreed to sell their possessions to the Gentiles and leave the county. At the last moment, however, the arrival of Wright, a Mormon colonel with 100 recruits, came near inducing the Mormons to rescind their agreement to leave. But after considerable discussion, they removed to Livingston and Davies counties. Settlements of Mormons had grown up at a few other places, though their principal town was still far west, and all efforts to dislodge them were, for a time, in vain. After the trouble at the election near Gallatin, the Mormons formed the plan of compelling all Gentiles to leave the country. They resorted to every sort of violence, driving people from their homes, destroying their household goods, and burning their buildings. Mr. Levi F. Gobin, a resident of Livingston County, said that he himself saw a ravine filled with furniture of the Gentiles which the Mormons had thrown there. A band of destroying angels, as they called themselves, went to the house of a man named Bogard. Mr. Bogard's wife was sick, but they made her get out of bed and leave the house, which they soon burned. She carried her baby in her arms, and after going a little way, fell at the roadside from weakness. And then a Mormon named Alred took the ramrod from his gun and whipped her to make her rise and travel further. The above are only instances of the many conflicts and outrages that mark the struggle between the Mormons and their opponents. In 1838, the disorders became so serious as to threaten civil war. Mormon offenders resisted arrest and were supported by the armed resistance of their fellow believers. Finally, Governor Boggs issued a proclamation ordering out the militia to put down the insurrection and enforce the laws, and General Alexander W. Donovan was sent to the scene of the trouble with part of the 1st Brigade of the state troops. The Mormon force, numbering about 1,000 men, was led by G.W. Hinkle. Their first encounter with the militia was a slight skirmish on Crooked River, which resulted in the killing of a Mormon named David Patton, Captain Fear Not, as he was styled himself, the leader of the Destroying Angels. The only engagement of any importance, however, was at Hans Mill, about 15 miles east of Far West. There's no official report of this battle, and the account given in this chapter is from the lips of a survivor of the bloody affray. The election trouble in 1838, followed by the effort on the part of the Mormons to drive out the Gentiles, caused the latter to organize independent companies of rangers. This independent command at no time exceeded 150 men. They were, for the most part, men with private grievances against the Mormons. The rangers of Davies and Livingston counties chose as their colonel Thomas Jennings, a soldier of 1812 who had fought under Jackson at New Orleans and who in later years served in the Mexican War. His son, Obadiah Jennings, was made captain of one of the companies. The entire force was composed of deer hunters and Indian fighters who were armed with their trusty rifles. 
the little band reduced by furloughs and dispatch parties to about 80 was encamped at Lock Springs to protect the Grand River settlements until the arrival of the expected militia. While the rangers were waiting there, a messenger ran into camp saying, the Mormons at Hughes Mill are going to burn Grand River. Jennings determined to march against the mill at once. It was not more than five miles from Lock Springs and he reached it at about three o'clock in the afternoon. The mill was situated on Shoal Creek, and there was a blacksmith shop west of it and about 50 yards away. A dam had been thrown across the creek to force the water into the mill. Two or three log cabins were built on the west side of the stream, and one or two on the east side. A well had been dug close to the blacksmith shop, and on this afternoon the Mormons, to the number of 40 or 50, were assembled about it. When Jennings came into sight of the mill, his men struck up the air with the fife and drum. The Mormons seized their guns and all that could crowded into the shop. Some got behind it, and a few started across the creek on the dam. The Gentiles opened fire and pressed forward upon the enemy. There was no time for parley, and both sides were determined neither to give nor ask quarter. Mounted on his white horse, Colonel Jennings rode up and down the line, encouraging his men by word and act. The old deer hunters sent their bullets with fatal effect through the chinks between the logs into the blacksmith's shop. The Mormons returned the fire, but every time their heads appeared at the cracks, they were struck by bullets. So they kept their heads down and, poking their guns through the cracks, fired without taking aim. In this manner, they shot over the heads of the Gentiles. Ira Glaze and Jesse Knave, both experienced deer hunters, ran up to the side of the shop and poked their guns through the chinks until muzzles almost touched men inside. The Mormons tried to shoot these bold rangers, but they hugged the outside walls close and kept out of range. Occasionally, Glaze was heard to shout, Your powder burnt me that time. During the remainder of the fight, these two daring men remained just on the outside of the shop, loading and firing through cracks at the men within. One Mormon leaped from the shop and running to the creek fled across the mill dam and reached a field beyond. He might have escaped had he not climbed on a fence and paused to look back. Frank Berry, an old deer hunter, saw him, leveled his rifle and fired. The Mormon dropped his gun, threw up his hands, and fell from the fence into the field. Another Mormon escaped from the blacksmith shop and was running up Shoal Creek when a Gentile named Jake Rogers saw him and gave chase. Jake's rifle was empty and he had no other weapon but a sword. The Mormon, seeing that he could not outrun the fleet Gentile, dropped his gun, then turning, he threw up his hands and begging for his life, but he appealed in vain. Rogers ran up on him, cut him down, and hacked him to death. No prisoners were taken, for all who did not escape were slain. Even a boy who had crawled under the bellows in the shop perished with the others. The firing from the outside continued until no response came from the shop. Then, pushing open the door, the rangers found the dark room tainted only by the dead. The exact number of Mormons killed is not known. History puts the number at 18 or 20, but an eyewitness who helped collect the dead said he counted 33. The dead Mormons were thrown into a newly dug well and were covered up. The men under Colonel Jennings soon afterwards joined the forces under Donovan and all marched to capture Far West. Here, Mormons fortified themselves for an attack, but at last, realizing the folly of their resistance, they agreed to dispose of their possessions and leave the state. Their property was sold at a great sacrifice, and they left Missouri never to return. Joseph Smith and some of the other leaders were arrested but made their escape, and others who were put on trial were acquitted by juries.
1841, an attempt was made to assassinate Governor Boggs, as was supposed by a Mormon named Porter Rockwell, but the attempt was a failure. The Mormons went to Illinois, where they again had trouble with the Gentiles. Joseph Smith and his brother were killed, and the others were driven from the state. They went to Utah under the new leaders, established another home in the wilderness, Salt Lake City, which is their capital today. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode and the crazy stories. And until the next episode, keep your horses tied up. Thanks for listening. These are the true stories that made it wild.